You're listening to Aesthetically Speaking. On this podcast, we're talking about all things branding, logos, colors, fonts, and the strategy behind it all. It seems like these days it's easier than ever to build an audience, but harder than ever to stand out online. My name's Rebecca, and I'm a brand strategist and designer. I'm here with my sister, Abby, a lawyer who needs a creative outlet. Together, we're going to talk about how to bring your brand to life. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Aesthetically Speaking. Today, we have been... Well, let me back up. This is a new thing that we want to do on the podcast because we've been getting some questions about the podcast and about some of the things that we've talked about. And so we thought that we would kind of talk about that today. And we want to show you that we are listening, (laughs) not just aesthetically speaking, we are aesthetically listening. (laughs) Yes. I always tell people I want feedback. I want to make this podcast better. So I truly, if you have thoughts, suggestions, anything, we're super open to it. So kind of the first thing that people have been asking is, how do we do the podcast? What does that look like? I think it's kind of this mysterious thing where like when you have a podcast, it seems obvious like, well, this is just what you do. But when you don't have it, you're like, how does that even work? You know? Yeah, I think it's true. I wanted a little a little behind the scenes for what the planning looks like. And then we thought it would be fun to do a little just description of what we do to prepare and then what we do actually recording. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, you guys know when we were starting the podcast, we had to rebrand everything because we wanted to change the name, which seems so funny now because I'm like, oh, this is this is a much better name. You know? I think it's a better fit. Yeah. It's a way better fit. So there was kind of like that process in like figuring out what the podcast was going to be and what the general framework of the podcast would be. And I was going to say first, Rebecca had the idea for a podcast quite a while ago. Oh, yeah. I've been like sitting on doing a podcast for, I don't know, a year. Yeah, over a year. And Rebecca consumes this. I'm making it sound like you're like a glutton, but (laughs) Rebecca listens to a lot more podcasts and was better versed in it and I think could see the value of it. Yes. So this really is her brainchild. And I have been supportive because I, I thought it'd be fun to listen to Rebecca talk about her work. But late in the game, she was like, I think the format should be host and a co host. And I basically, we talked about this a lot over Marco Polo and I just texted her and I said, I volunteer as tribute. I will do it. Well, I was like, okay, so context. I've been sitting on this idea for the podcast, for a podcast for a long time. And originally I thought that I would just do guest interviews because that's what a lot of podcasters do. And I think that's great. And I love that. And I am starting to be a guest on more podcasts, which is cool. But the podcast that I listen to religiously, the ones that I just tune in all the time, had a couple of things in common. One was that they weren't guest podcasts. They didn't have special guests. It was the same person every time. And actually, all of them were the same two people every time. And there's a meme or something that's like, I don't want to listen to two people talk. I want to listen to two people who are too close to one another until I adopt all of their mannerisms and inside jokes. And like, (laughs) that is the kind of podcast that I love. And so I was like, okay, I think I'm onto something there. I want to have the same format every time. And I really wanted a co-host. And I was like, who should I have be my co-host? Like I have, I have clients that I'm very good friends with that I think we would have great conversations. Anyway, I went like around and around and the thought just kept coming up. Abby, Abby should be my co-host. She's the person who knows me best. Aw. She knows 
you, she, you, I don't know whether to talk about you in third person or not, but you know everything about my business and how I like to approach it and like to think about it and like to talk about it, even though you're not an online entrepreneur person. Yeah, I'm not in that world. Which I also liked. Anyway, so yeah, over Marco Polo, I was like, okay, here's the thing. I've been like talking about the podcast. I'm like, okay, here's the thing. I want to do a podcast, but I want a co-host and I want you to be my co-host. And I I remember being like, but if we're going to do it, like we're going to do it for real. So if you're in, then we're in. Like you, you think about it, totally up to you. And I still remember I like pulled into the church parking lot and you had just Marco Polo me or texted me and you were like, I will be your podcast co-host. <laughs> and I literally was like, I'm so excited. I immediately Marco Polo'd you. I'm okay, we're going to do this for real, like getting everything set up anyway. So that was probably more information than you need, but that was like the background of creating the podcast. And I did want to mention because people had asked, oh, you sound so great on the podcast. And I have been working a lot on not saying like and um so much, but I still say it all the time. And we do have a podcast manager, Allison, who edits the podcast. She schedules everything to go live in all the different platforms. And she really walked me through the process of setting up a podcast basically and like the equipment that we need and all that kind of stuff. And I think it's important to mention that A, because I don't want people to get the impression that I just do it all myself kind of thing. Right. And B, because I really believe in hiring experts. And I knew that when I wanted to do a podcast, I I talked to a lot of people and people would be like, you can just record it on your phone. Like just do a voice memo on your phone and publish it. And that's just not my vibe. I'm like a let's do it all the way, do it the right way kind of thing. Yeah, Rebecca is a invest in yourself do things right the first time. <laughs> yes. I was like, I if I'm going to do a podcast, I'm going to do a podcast. So that was one reason why I was like, I want to hire somebody who can take as much off my hands as possible. And that's what Allison does. We record. Abby is new at writing the show notes. So those are going to be much spicier. And then Allison- I, I mean, no guarantees. <laughs> <laughs> Allison takes care of the rest, which is really great. So I like, I think that's important to know. And it's okay in your business to be like, this is something that I want done well. And I don't really want to learn how to do it myself. So I'm going to pay someone else to do it. Yeah. Outsourcing. Right. Yeah. I would say all of that is true. So in terms of our process, I think step one was who is the podcast? Who's going to create this every week? Yes. And then once it was decided that it was going to be, it was Rebecca's content, right? Her expertise Mm -hmm. that forms the basis of Mm -hmm. what we're talking about every week. And then once I signed on and committed to it, we kind of together came up with a structure. I'm I'm a big fan of arbitrary structure. (laughs) Yes. It was Abby's idea to do the ABCs. And that was even before I was like, will you be my co-host? I was like, I just, I need a framework. And she was like, just do the ABCs. It doesn't have to be anything. Just pick something that will give you some constraint and that will allow you to think better. And that has totally worked. And I think having going in alphabetical order, we've done things that we wouldn't normally think. In the top five topics to talk about with branding, I don't think the American Girl Dolls are up there, (laughs) but I do think that showcases some of your unique talents. And I think it makes it more entertaining, which is half half the point, right? I actually think, so how many letters have we done? A, B, C, D, E, F at this point. I'm like, I actually feel like those six categories give you a pretty good insight into our personalities. I think so too. Like it's kind of funny that it's worked out that way. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Something else I was going to note is that, so we, we like collaborate on the topics, 
Mm-hmm. Yes. Pretty much our entire text message thread is, we should talk about this on the podcast. Should we put that in G is for government or under H <laughs> is for, I don't know. H is for holy or I mean, oh, yeah, like, what we're going to do. Yeah, like it's a constant just... Okay. And oh, and we should ask this question on the podcast. We should talk about this. So it's like just kind of ongoing brainstorming. It's ongoing brainstorming. But I would also say it's important. It's important for you, dear listeners, to know that we do not script the podcast. So we're brainstorming all the time and we're bouncing ideas. But when we actually sit down to record, we might have a bulleted list of like, here's four things we want to talk about. And we might say, okay, you start and I'll finish. Mm -hmm. But most of the time, when we do a branding challenge, Rebecca has made it, but I have not seen it. Yeah. And when I'm asking Rebecca questions, I haven't sent her those in advance. You might be able to tell that may be obvious, but <laughs> this this isn't something that we like write out a full script and we plan our reactions. Like we really wanted it to be conversational and, you know, spontaneous and off the cuff. Yeah. No, none of it is scripted. And even the stuff like when I'm presenting the brands to you, I think through a lot of things, but I don't have the list of bullet points like, oh, make sure that you explain that the shape of Andrew's brand is a metaphor for an open book. Like that's that's something that just comes out of me as we're talking about it. Right. And sometimes I'm like, for example, when we talked about editorial on Eliza's episode, I have been wanting to go back and be like, here's what I actually want to say about editorial versus catalog versus general versus pedestrian. (laughs) Like I have this whole, it's like when you have an argument and you're like, two weeks later, you have the perfect comeback. Yeah. There's definitely some of that where I'm, oh, I should have said that. I should have explained this or whatever. But it was important to me that this be a conversation. And this sounds like braggadocious, but hopefully you get my sincerity that you A, see that I am a person and B, see that I really know this stuff. I really like this stuff. And yeah, hopefully I'm not too terrible at talking about it. Yeah, I think that's true. The last thing I wanted to mention in our little behind the scenes segment, Rebecca, I think you should talk about like, what do you do immediately before we record? Or And like, where where are we while we're recording? Okay, well, I have a very sacred ritual called I drive to Sonic and I get a Route 44 Dr. Pepper with easy ice. Okay. And I sip it and I think to myself, you got this. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I don't really think that, but I do generally think about the podcast while I'm driving home with my Dr. Pepper and I'm thinking like, okay, here's what we're going to talk about. I really... I hate it when I listen back to my voice and I sound tired. And so I really try to hone in like the energy. And then right before the podcast, I try to just focus. We usually put like a little outline, you know, or like the questions that we're going to talk about in the chat and then just turn everything off and just go. And even with this podcast tonight, you guys, Abby and I were talking. I was like, okay, is there anything else you need to talk about? you know, before we record or whatever. And I was like, oh, we should talk about this. Well, actually, and as we got talking, I was like, okay, we just need to start recording because we're already having the conversation, you know? Right, right. And we don't want to, we don't want to pre-do it, right? We want to do it exactly at when right. the cameras are rolling or when the, when the metaphorical Zoom audio tape is rolling. <laughs> exactly. Okay. So what's your like pre-game ritual? My pre-game ritual is, okay, usually, usually I record in bed. It's not a good habit. It is destroying my lower back. (laughs) But it makes me feel comfy like I'm talking to a friend. Yeah. And it is, our house is a little bit open concept Mm -hmm. in a way that is like stylish, but not always functional. And so having a little bit of privacy and not 
not feeling like I have to alter my voice so that it doesn't wake up the baby, you know, or it doesn't disturb yeah. other people. The other thing, Rebecca and I do this in different locations. So Rebecca's in Dallas and I'm in Las Vegas. Oh, yeah. We should have said that. We're not in the same room. We do this over Zoom. We aspire to one day record in the same place. So that would be amazing. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So um, I and usually, I also record in my bedroom. Yeah. So I'm starting to do it in our guest bedroom, which is also a study. Okay. And that's so I use the biggest glass of water. Mm-hmm. And I hate it when air conditioning, I like that the air is cool, but I don't like air that is cold touching me. Oh, yeah. So I have to either be covered in a blanket or the comforter of my bed, or tonight I'm wearing sweatpants, even though it's 105 degrees outside tonight. See, that's so funny because I have to have moving air on me. Even right now, the fan is off and I'm just, oh, I wish it was moving. I think that's a humidity thing. It probably is. I do. When I go to sleep, I like a blanket between me and the air, but I have to have a ceiling fan. It blows my mind when I go to someone's house. And in Texas, everyone has ceiling fans, but like in Utah, and I'm like, where are your ceiling fans? (laughs) Like every room doesn't have a ceiling fan. I know. It's like crazy to me. Yeah. The other part of my pre-podcast ritual is that Rebecca and I talk about our lives. Well, first my computer crashes several times and then Rebecca (laughs) and I have to debrief for 15 minutes sometimes longer before we can get it all out of our system and then talk strictly business. Yes. Yeah, it's true. It's hard to like move past everything, like let all of the dust of your daily life settle. So you have to do that first. Yeah. But that's, yeah, I mean, that's basically the podcast. And then, okay, so once we've recorded an episode, we send it to Allison and she edits it. She takes out all of the awkward pauses. You know, I have a cough right now. So every time I cough, she's going to, hopefully edit that out, you know? So we just get to record and then share it with you. Yeah. And I do think my hope for the podcast is that, like Rebecca was saying, you can tell that it comes naturally. And these are things that we think about in our daily lives and we interact with brands and consumer products. And we have opinions and thoughts about those. Some of us, Rebecca, have more expertise than others. (laughs) But it's also, we didn't want to just waste people's time. Yeah. Talking about it. Like, I think it's entertaining when people talk about unrelated stuff on their podcast, but our goal is not just to be entertaining. And I don't think we're enough of personalities to just be sustaining the podcast on our own opinions. Like, we wanted it to have substance and also educate people about what you could do. Yes. When I started the podcast, I basically had three goals. One was to create a place for discussion, for collaboration about branding and aesthetics and design in business that would be useful and educational for business people and anyone who's interested in that. Two was to give people a sense for what it would be like to be a client of mine and to show kind of my process and the way that I think and the way that I approach branding. And three is to establish myself as an authority and a thought leader in this space. And I think podcasts are a great way to do that because you can get more of this, you know, context and background and personality than you can get in like a short TikTok video. Yeah, I think that's a good transition. So we'll move now to the substantive questions Yes, um, from some of our listeners. Later in the episode, I think we should talk about like, what are our fans called? Oh, I was just listening to my favorite murder where they are called murderinos. Murderinos. Yeah. Okay. So think about that in your branding brain. Okay. okay we'll come back in to the that. background. We'll circle yes. back. So the question that we got, and I'm not sure what episode this stemmed from, but someone said, how do you choose who your target audience is? Yeah. So it came from, I'm not sure what episode, but it was when we were talking about Dungeons and Dragons. 
Oh, I think that's at the beginning of the Cobb, Cobb, the tech consultant branding challenge. Yes, I think you're right. So Jonathan, our little brother, he was asking me, you know, I've been thinking a lot about Dungeons and Dragons and how it could be branded differently. And he was like, I feel like I need a lesson in how you actually choose your target audience. Like if you created this Dungeons and Dragons game, how do you decide whether your audience is like the nerdy guy group or whether it's like... No no offense. No offense. No offense. D&D friends. (laughs) No, there's no judgment there. But we know that demographic, right? But we know who you are and what you stand for. Yeah. Own it. Or is your target audience, you're going more for like the creative, funny, improv, millennial group, right? Yeah. I love this question because I think it's really foundational. Like before you can talk about branding to reach a specific audience, you have to decide who that audience actually is. Right. And I actually... Y'all go ahead. What I was thinking of too is... For some people, I think in some industries, it's much more natural or maybe fluid between Mm -hmm. who you are and what the product is. Yes. When you're doing a personal service, obviously your personality and your skill set is at the forefront. Mm -hmm. But when what you're selling is a product, especially a product that is useful to multiple demographics, Mm -hmm. sometimes the egg comes before the chicken. Sometimes you know this is what I'm selling. And then you have to figure out who the brand is because it's not really about you in the same way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think what I like about this is that in the question is kind of the answer that you choose your target audience, meaning it's a choice. Interesting. There are lots of different people who could like playing Dungeons and Dragons and you get to choose who you want to appeal to. Right. So like 99% of the time, you're going to look at who the creator of the product or the CEO of the brand is, and it's probably going to align with what they think. Yeah. That's only natural because that's their experience. So I'm guessing that the creator of Dungeons and Dragons, excuse me, it sounds like I'm like choked up, but I'm not. Rebecca's getting really emotional. I'm just so emotional. <laughs> emotional. She's so emotional. She's so touched by the idea of Dungeons and Dragons. I bet that the creator of Dungeons and Dragons, no. <laughs> I would be willing to bet that the creator of Dungeons and Dragons is probably this nerdy guy, right? And so he's like, yeah. this is who it's for because that's who I am. And I think that's totally natural. Yeah. One of the advice that floats around the internet is that your target audience, this is like a, a quote that you see, your target audience is you three years ago. So the idea is they, like they, they're, you, they're your personality, they're your people, you're just a little bit farther on the path than they are. And I'm like, I think that's, I think that can be your target audience, but it doesn't have to be. Yeah. You can be a guy that creates a really feminine brand. You can be a girl that creates this brand that's for tough guys. There's no, it doesn't have to be that way. According to this song on the radio, Victoria's Secret was created by an old dude in Ohio. Making Is money off anyone like me. surprised by that? No, no. I don't, I would have a very hard time looking at Victoria's Secret and being like, oh yeah, a woman clearly created this brand. Yeah. It seems very male gaze designed. Yeah. Shocker. (laughs) Surprise, surprise. Yeah. So, okay. My other sub question before you can talk about like your experience and what you think is true. Yes. What is the role of market research in this phase? Like is someone coming up to you and saying, I've created a widget. Mm -hmm. The widget is the word they use for any physical tangible product on the bar exam, which I'm studying for right now. Interesting. I did not know that. Seller A sold 10,000 widgets. That is so funny. 
I'm like, just use the word gadget. But it's, yeah. 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 So widget. A, widget, widget. a widget is basically just a thing. A thing. Yeah. But when I hear the word, sorry, we're getting off topic. When I hear no. the word widget, the thing that I imagine is a, a fidget spinner. <laughs> that's that's literally what I see. I yes. see a fidget spinner. Yeah. That's Anyways, so but if you, if you design a widget, mm-hmm. do you go to like the almighty marketing experts and you say, okay, who has the most market power? What age? What location? And then just peg it to them? Or is it something that's more organic? Or, you know, like what, what kind of research do you do for this? Or is it a feeling? Yeah, it depends on the business. So I've had clients who are working, you know, maybe they have investors, right? Like they have some serious capital and they are approaching their business from a very logical standpoint. Like we want this percentage of market share. We're targeting this audience from this age to this age. And so they do market research or focus groups or surveys or whatever. And I, you can probably guess how I feel about it from that response, but it's just very like surveys or whatever. It's just very technical. And you survey a hundred people and you ask them how they feel about this thing and how much they'd be willing to spend on it. And like you make all of your decisions based on that data. Mm-hmm. And that works. And that's that's effective. Basically, you'll reveal that there's like a gap somewhere in the market. Oh, well, actually, generation alpha or whatever it is really likes fidget spinners that are blue and they don't make fidget spinners that are blue. So here we go, you know, like whatever it is. Interesting. And so that becomes your product. The way that happens for most of my clients who are in personal professional services industries is much, much more organic. So you're looking at, okay, what am I good at? What am I selling? And then you're saying, who do I really want to sell this to? And in that sense, when you're choosing your target audience, the only kind of consideration that I want you to make is, am I choosing a target audience that is able, willing, and ready to buy this widget? Yeah. There is a reason that there are not a lot of service providers for broke people because broke people can't afford to pay for help. Yeah. And like that sounds harsh, but your role as a business owner is to profit and make money and that's okay. Yeah. It's not your job to be a charity. So I think that's the number one thing is, okay, my target audience has to be people who can afford this, who want this. And ideally that I know how to reach and have the ability to reach. Right. The other thing I was thinking about while you were explaining that, and correct me if I'm wrong, it also seems very different to me in a product versus service industry. So if I'm selling a product, it's probably going through a retailer, Mm -hmm. someone else, all the customers, I mean, maybe I'm doing the customer service, but it's, I'm not interfacing with these people. Right. Right. So I don't really care if they're nice, Mm -hmm. if they're easy to work with, if we have a ton in common, if they want to buy and I want to sell, it's mutually beneficial and we can just go from there. So it's whoever's got the market power. Right. 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 When you're selling a service, Maybe there isn't as much of a right answer of here's the gap in the market, but there is more of a who am I willing to work with? And if I see this person and interact with them and inform them and advocate for them, what kind of people do I want to work with? Exactly. And those sales, if that's the right word, those are all relationship-based, right? Like it's who do I have a relationship right now and who do I want to have a relationship with? Yeah. And it's also interesting because Product-based products, retail products, e-commerce or whatever, there's so many different levels 
at the very bottom is direct to consumer, right? I have a widget yeah. that I am selling direct to the consumer. And you can build a profitable business that way. But most product-based businesses, when they are making lots of money, they are not selling direct to consumers. They're selling to other businesses. That Those are enterprise clients, which also become relationship-based because it's like, okay, yeah. well, I have a relationship with somebody at Target who's willing to buy 250000 of my widget. I love that word, actually. I'm totally on board with that. <laughs> Once you have answered 500 questions about breach of contract, we'll no longer like the word widget. It will keep you up at night. Anyway, that's like generally how a product business grows, right? So yeah. they, they may have their own website where they're selling direct to consumer, but by and large, they're making money by selling to bigger retailers who have a broader reach. Right. I'm curious if you've worked with any clients at the initial phase when they're still making that determination and like what, whether if, to sell direct to consumer or enterprise. Yeah. Just deciding, deciding who's my audience, right? Is it the Etsy crowd or is it the Amazon crowd? Is it mm -hmm. consumers? Is it businesses? Um, like, first of all, how are they making those decisions? And then mm -hmm. what's your role in helping them make that decision? Or once they've decided, how does that change your, your strategy? Yeah. So this is a big part of what I help my clients do is figuring out, usually we call who is your ideal client or your ideal client profile is usually what I create for them. And basically what I do is start by just saying, okay, high level, who is anyone and everyone that could be interested in what you're selling? And my clients typically have experience, right? So they're not coming at this yeah. behind. They're saying, okay, in the past five years, this is kind of who has been coming to me. And there's often one to three categories of people. And yeah. so we'll put them in categories. You know, you'll have the stay at home mom who wants a creative outlet. You'll have the young working professional woman. You'll have the empty nester, you know, whatever those categories are. So it's kind of the way that I imagine it is like a, a bow tie shape, if that makes okay. sense. You start mm -hmm. broad. Then you kind of categorize and then you go. I back. just want to say for the, sorry to interrupt you, for the listeners, <laughs> Rebecca said bow tie, but what she That's meant was hourglass. She hourglass. Meant hourglass. A bow tie on its right side. A, a sideways bow tie, an hourglass, or two triangles touching each other, like in the Da Vinci Code, the two pyramids at the loop. <laughs> An hourglass. That's a that's the word I was probably looking for. Anyway, but basically we want to separate them out and then we want to come back and say, okay, what do all of these people have in common? That's the common thread that we want to address. And that doesn't mean that we don't target like one specific demographic, right? Like specificity is always better, especially in the beginning. But branding is really about like, okay, what is it about these people that makes them want to buy this, right? And yeah. one thing that I talk about with my clients is like, what is the moment when they actually decide I'm going to solve this problem or address this desire that I have? And what's yeah. their thought process? It's way more than just, I don't have enough money, so I have to hire a business coach. Like there's something yeah. specific that when we can identify that and articulate it, that really helps us hone in on who these people are. How did I get on that topic? I was just asking what your process is. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, helping clients determine that. And then once they decide, does that change your strategy as a designer and a, the brand strategist? Yeah. The other thing that I was going to say is I'm always pushing my clients to think bigger and think more long term. So I had an interesting 
kind of thought because what has happened with my clients and with businesses that I've worked with in the past is they kind of have two separate target audiences where they have one target audience that's like, these are the people that I'm reaching right now and they're buying my product or they're connecting with the way that I'm marketing, but they're not really the target audience that I want to be reaching. Hmm. What I, I, you know, if I have, if I have people over here who are, you know, businessmen, executives, CEOs, but I really want to be reaching entrepreneur, freelance women. Yeah. Who do I appeal to? Do I work on marketing towards the people who are already buying or do I transition to who I would like to buy? Right. Who I would like to buy from me, who I want to buy from me. However you want to say that. Who I want to sell to. Who I want to sell to. Thank you. And I feel like the answer is pretty simple. If you need short-term sales, you focus on who is buying right now. If you really want long-term sustainability, you focus on who you think is a more ideal client long-term. Interesting. And that sometimes requires tough decisions. A brief example, if I may, because I love this story. CVS... This is from The Infinite Game by Simon Sinek. He tells this story about businesses that think long-term versus short-term. Mm-hmm. And he tells the story of CVS who did some you know, long-term planning, strategy, branding for their business and determined that if their objective was truly to help people live healthier lives, that they should stop selling cigarettes. Interesting. And at the time, a large percentage of their sales came from cigarettes. Yeah. And so it was a huge hit to their business, but they felt it would be out of integrity for us to sell cigarettes. Like we're, we want people to be healthy. Yeah. And it's so interesting because if you look at cigarette sales, they peaked right in like the 70s, 80s, and then they drastically went down. Yeah. And CVS was ahead of the curve, represented this new wave of health, all these good things that has actually helped them succeed. In business, because they were willing to say, okay, we're not going to focus on who's buying and what they're buying right now. We're going to focus on the 10 year or the 50 year version of our business. And right. I, like that's my goal and that's my ideal clients. That's the kind of business that they want to build. They're like, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm willing to refocus because I know that who I really want to work with are these people. And I just need some help refining my message and my aesthetics to talk to them, you know? Yeah. That's a super interesting case Isn't study. That fascinating. Yeah. Well, and it makes it makes sense that yeah. someplace that is a pharmacy, if they really want to lean into health, yeah, why are you selling that? Right. But so many corner pharmacies do. Right. I think about it all the time. Like that seems so crazy that they would sell cigarettes at all, but that was a thing. Yeah. Anyway. Super yeah, fascinating. Wild. The other half of this question, I think, is once you've decided, okay, I know who's interested in this product, I know who's willing to buy, I know who I'm willing to work with. Mm-hmm. Once that, it, once you've identified that, and to a high level of specificity, how do you find those people? <laughs> how do you actually reach the people you want how to sell to? Find them. Yeah. Where are they? I think also today there's this assumption that everybody's online and everybody's on quote social media mm-hmm. whatever that is yeah i think this is kind of a coachy answer but something that i really do believe which is that your target audience is everywhere hmm. okay and i really 
are there strategies, right, where there's demographics that are more on Twitter or Instagram or Pinterest or you should only advertise on live TV or whatever it is? Like, of course. Yeah. But by and large, there are so many people in the world that whatever fits your brand, I think your people will be there. And I don't think it serves you to be like, well, I'll post on Instagram, but like my ideal client isn't on there. It's like, well, if you don't believe that, then stop posting. Yeah. You know, but in terms of, let's say that you have started this business and you're like, how do I actually find the people who want or need my product? I know this sounds super basic, but actually take a step back and ask yourself, if I was somebody who needed what I'm selling, where would I look for it? Yeah. Let's just use this as an example. If I was a mom who wanted to teach her kids how to swim, where would I look for help? Mm-hmm. And just like brain dump all of the places that you would go to find that solution. Like, would you get on Google? Would you ask your friends? Would you post on Instagram and say, did anybody know a good swim teacher? Yeah. Get your wheels churning about what that process looks like. And that will really clue you into how your target audience makes decisions and all the different ways that you could actually reach them. Yeah. It doesn't just have to be SEO. It doesn't just have to be paid advertising or billboards. People are looking for solutions everywhere. Yeah. And like we were saying, everything is relationships. Mm -hmm. And even in my own business, my business has grown largely because of word of mouth. Yeah. I have one client who works with me and they refer somebody else to work with me. I I always say my clients are my best advertising. Mm -hmm. And so I think consider that and consider like, what does word of mouth marketing really look like in this day and age? But the other, this is like a huge tangent, but I was just reading this article about how Instagram is actually super effective in terms of advertising. I'll say it's effective. I can't find anything that's not an ad anymore. All I see all I see is sponsored posts and recommended. Oh my gosh. It's to the point now where, so I was looking at um, our sister-in-law's Instagram, Emmy. Love mm-hmm. you, Emmy. And on her own page, if I clicked on one of her posts, I was looking at her wedding pictures with my little mm-hmm. brother. If I was scrolling between her own posts on her profile, they yep. flipped in some ads. Yep. And they don't do it on my own page. Like if I'm looking at my profile, I can scroll through everything. But mm-hmm. Nothing is sacred anymore. Everything mm-hmm. is an ad. Yep. And well, you and- might not even know. Sorry about my tan. You might not even know what's showing up on your page. Like someone might be looking at you and see something that you find offensive or yes. inappropriate or don't support. And it's right next to your kid's face. Yep. This goes back to what I was saying earlier about how product-based businesses, as they grow, they make more money by selling to other businesses. That's exactly what Instagram is doing. Yeah. They're not making any money off of you. I don't pay anything to Instagram. So well, they they're make, making they're making tons of money off us because they sell all of our data. <laughs> right. But they're but they're selling opportunities to other businesses yeah. to advertise or to get the data or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. That's how it works because businesses have a lot more money to spend than an individual consumer, even if you have however many billions of users Instagram has. Right. I also sorry to get on my own tangent. I read this really interesting article about how online advertising works and how the bidding works that businesses are making split second bids for your attention. Oh, yeah. Even something like when you open your Gmail inbox and there's ads in there, Mm -hmm. 
those are like in a split second bidding war between different businesses to catch your attention based on some basic information that they know about you as mm-hmm. a consumer. Yeah. And that's just really fascinating to me too, that it's advertising is so pervasive mm-hmm. that like everything you're doing online, someone is watching and trying to like, Hey, look at me, look at me, look at me. Buy from me. Yes. Yes. Also, this is a plug to stop using Gmail and start using Superhuman, which is the best email app I've ever used. Interesting. I was like, you have ads in your Gmail? I'm like, oh, yeah. If you like actually log into Gmail, you got seriously, if you've never looked up Superhuman, you should look it up because I am obsessed with it. Does it transfer? You can access all of your Gmail accounts? Yeah, it's just like a, a different interface for it. It's still your same email account. Interesting. I'll look it up. What I'm tired of in Gmail is because I don't have the Gmail app because I don't want big tech watching literally everything I do. So I log in through a browser anytime I'm using (laughs) Gmail. And every time I log in through a browser, I get an email to my primary email and my backup saying security alert. You've logged into your own email account. Oh, that is so annoying. There is nothing more annoying to me than accounts or websites or whatever that are so secure that every time I end up having to reset my password because it yep. won't let me in. I have to do the two-factor authentication. Oh, that drives me crazy. Yep. Okay. This is the last thing that I wanted to say about how do you find, quote unquote, your target audience. And I'm mm-hmm. putting that in quotations because part of what I believe as a branding expert is that you don't find your target audience, you create your target audience. That's I like that. That's what I believe about branding is that it is like the art and science of turning the people that you're already talking to into your ideal clients. Yeah. And I don't think you mean that in an MLM way where it's like you're always selling. No, no, no. I mean that in like an emotional way of you teach people who you are. You teach them what to expect from you. Over time, Walmart has taught us that we will give you the absolute cheapest prices, mm-hmm. right? If Walmart tried to sell you a $1,000 t-shirt, you'd be like, what? I wouldn't buy that. Who do you think you are, Walmart? But a designer, Chanel, can come out with a $1,000 t-shirt and you're like, yeah, that seems on par, mm-hmm. right? Because over time, they have created a brand. They've created their ideal clients. And they know what to expect from you. And so I think sometimes we have this idea that, oh, like my people used to ask me all the time, like, where do you find high ticket clients? And I'm like, I don't find them. Like, you think that I have some special secret underground tunnel where all of the high ticket clients hang out, right? And like, if I could just tell you where the tunnel is, like, you'd have them too. And I'm like, I have created high ticket clients by the way I approach content, by the way I show up online, by the way I'm creating a podcast. All of those things create a brand that tells people how to interact with me. And then those people become clients. My other question about this area is, is there a risk of, of niching down too much that you're only, you're only serving people that look and believe what you do or that you're, you know, you're like, I only serve rich single moms mm-hmm. who also do yoga mm-hmm. and are also into human design. Yeah. Like that is the only person that I know. And is there a risk of that? Or is it that you really can't 
get to niche because that's that's specific and that speaks truth about your product or service. Yeah. So I think you kind of have two questions here. Correct me if I'm wrong. One is, is it possible to get too specific? Yes. That and, is one question. Yeah. And I think the answer to that is probably, but I've okay. never really seen a business do it. Yeah. Because it is hard and scary to really niche down, right? Even if you say like, I only want to talk to dog owners. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, but what about cat owners? My tools or services or whatever could be useful for them. And so you're like, well, I'll just do pet owners, you know? Or then you're like, yeah, what if I just do pet owners who have more than three pets, right? <laughs> like there, there's probably like a level of- Serial pet that's, owners. Yeah, that's like too much. Um, I actually think that would be brilliant. Probably, yeah. But I, I think there's some challenges of doing that. So I have never told a client, I just think your niche is too specific. Interesting. And I, this is like another topic, but I, I generally don't tell my clients, you need to choose a niche. You have to niche down. Some of them okay. want to, like they want to get more specific and I help them do that. And some of them are like, I don't, I don't want to niche myself down. I like it being kind of open-ended. Yeah. And that can work. Niching is just one strategy. And there's lots of different ways to niche. Anyway, I think your second question is when you approach your target audience, creating your target audience, these things that we're talking about, do you run the risk of only working with people who look and sound and think like you do? Or even like, yeah, you know, sometimes I think we get into like this coaches, coaching coaches kind of yes. thing. And I think there is a danger in that, not so much in the way that we're choosing a target audience, but I think it's really easy, like I was saying, to create content for yourself, quote unquote. Like, oh, yeah. the me from two years ago really needed to hear this. Yeah. But I really think that if you are choosing your target audience based on, if you ask yourself, what I like to ask is, who are the clients that you would like to have a full roster of? Mm-hmm. And two, who are the people that would get the absolute best results? From working with you. And when you think about it that way, I think you're less likely to get this echo chamber of clients, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's helpful. But I think it's just something that you should think about and be aware of. Do I only want to work with people who are like me? And I'm not putting judgment on that. Or do I want to work with a wide variety of clients? And what does that really look like? You know? Yeah. I guess as I'm thinking about it, I'm like, there is some inherent you know, there have to be similarities because that's kind of the nature of choosing an ideal client. But like I said, it doesn't have to all look like it must be a woman making this much money in this kind of career. There's a variety within that. Yeah. The other thing I was thinking about in this topic is just how different the process of looking for clients is for different professions. Well, I was going to say, I know that the way that I find clients is very different from the way that a lawyer would find clients. Right. And some of that is just the structure. Like you are an entrepreneur, you're in charge of your own business. You, you know, you are the captain of your fate in a way that I am not as much. Sure. When, when you work for any corporation or firm, part of that is that I have outsourced the finding of clients. I have worked with a group of lawyers. And so the clients are a steady stream and I don't have to, you know, I don't have to kill what I eat. Right. But Along with that, well, I guess there's a couple of things. One is that I think there are unique restrictions depending on the role that you're in. My background as a lawyer, 
there are ethical rules about what you are allowed to advertise and who you can advertise to and even how soon you can reach out to people if they've been in an accident. So this brings up a very important, well, two questions. One is you've seen Better Call Saul, right? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, I have. So at the beginning, he's trying to do this thing where like he's just going to show up at the same time as his client and be like, oh, my gosh, are you hit somebody with your car? Like, I just happen to be here. Of course, I can talk to you, whatever. (laughs) Is that just because he's slimy or is that because he can't formally solicit a client like that? So the answer is always in every legal question, it depends. <laughs> so every state has its own ethical rules, right? Okay. And I'm I'm not an ethics expert, but hashtag most states, not legal advice. Hashtag not legal advice. <laughs> but as far as I know, like the general principle is if even like if you get if you see on the news that someone's been in an accident, most states still have a limitation on you sending them a letter saying, Hey, you might have a claim. Interesting. At least they're going to have limits on the time you can contact them or the method. Yeah. In some states, you have to register any advertisement with the state bar and they have to approve it. Is that why all personal injury lawyers have the exact same advertising? Yeah, it's just that the state bar really likes cheap suits and they really (laughs) like a certain pose. No, I I don't know why that is, but it's just very regulated in a way that other stuff is not. Have I told you about the guy's in Dallas who have all these billboards that say accident will take care of it and it's these two lawyers holding sledgehammers oh my gosh and I'm like what are you gonna do (laughs) yeah that's a little that's interesting there is a law firm in California called pain and fears oh my gosh and that's actually just the last names of the people well yeah with last names like that you have to be lawyers it's the law yeah it's like that or bail bondsmen Anyway, so my my first point is searching for your ideal client might look different because for me, at least in this phase of life where I'm doing law with a law firm, my my employment and my income doesn't depend on my ability to recruit people who need legal advice or legal mm-hmm. representation. Sure. I, there's a study too that I just need to look good to other lawyers. Right. And I need a firm to hire me and I need I need them to feel like I fill a gap in right. their knowledge and their personnel. Right. So I I think those restrictions don't mean that I don't need a brand, right? It just means it's going to look different. Yeah. I also think lawyers, individual lawyers would benefit from some personal branding mm. because you represent the firm that you work for and you also represent the client that you work for anyway. And so right. I think... Like, I I don't know what the process is, but I would be really interested to know if there's training or styling or any of those things that would go into, here's how you present yourself. And I think that should extend online. Here's here's what you can talk about. Here's what you should say. Here's how you represent yourself well, you know? Yep. And there are pretty, not just in the law firm context, but in government jobs too, there's a lot of restrictions to make sure that you look neutral. Yeah. Right. That you're not expressing a view publicly that you're going to have to contradict in court and someone's going to call you on it. You're going to, you're not going to discourage clients from working with you because you are, you know, have erratic views or look like you've prejudged their case at the outset. Yeah. 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 That's tricky too. Right. 
I'm assuming the law is different in Canada. I ask because there is a lawyer that I follow who has a practice in the Canadian on the Canadian side of Niagara Falls. Uh-huh. And she makes all these TikToks that are like, hire me to be your lawyer when we get <laughs> divorced. And I'm always like, can she do that? Yeah. And the answer to your first question, are the laws different in Canada? The answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> that like, I does, can say like, definitively. Does Canada have the same laws as us? Or are they like does a different Canada country? Have laws? Do they have laws at all? Yeah. Are there rules? Are bears in charge? Look, I said I knew a lot about branding. I never said I knew a lot about Canada. Okay. Yeah. It's fine. Shout out and to I my would just two say, clients who are from Canada. I love you so much. <laughs> yes. Shout out to my two coworkers who are dual <laughs> citizens. Just straddling that fence. Like, oh, yeah. are you Canadian? Are you an American? Make a choice. Yeah. So I would say it's like, it's very specific. Some some people are like really interested in having their lawyers be at the forefront of the cultural dialogue and they want them to be publishing. They want right. them to, you know, posting blog posts about developments in the law. Yeah. Depending on your field, like some, it's mostly academics that are active in like the podcasting and Twitter space. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah. That makes a lot of these restrictions, but some people it's attractive to be very active so that when you're like, oh, I need someone in election law. Boom. I know who to contact. I need a Mm -hmm. criminal defense attorney. Boom. Right. But I think as you get more clout, that's easier. Mm hmm. As a younger lawyer, especially as an associate, before you have like a vested interest in one firm, yeah, there are some restrictions on moonlighting or just about. I mean, mm. there's general restrictions on giving legal advice, which is why this isn't a law podcast. Absolutely. But yeah, I think it just totally depends on what the law firm's brand is and what their risk tolerance is. Yeah. We should honestly do a whole episode about, I was thinking like legal drama, the aesthetics of legal dramas. <laughs> Oh my gosh. I have been watching Suits is like getting targeted to me, which I've never seen. I'm like, what's up? Why are you suddenly pushing this so much? I'm like, I don't need, I don't need to watch some baby faced (laughs) actor. Tell me about the bar exam. I've done it once. And here I am living in my own personal hell, doing it again. You've done it. I don't want to watch a show twice. I'm about to again. She's going to do it again. Yeah. Because I think a lot of specifically like personal injury, but maybe other types of law as well, actually really benefit from the bad branding that I've talked about before. Oh, yeah. You can use that to your advantage, right? That's kind of like the Better Call Saul model. Like he's got like the blow up Statue of Liberty on top of his building. We should should probably just do a whole episode on Better Call Saul. Oh, my gosh. I think it's so genius. I... Literally, the only thing that I know about anything legal is what I know from Abby and what I know from watching literally every legal drama that has ever been made because that is my favorite kind of show. Yep. Have you seen The Lincoln Lawyer? I think I talked to you about The Lincoln Lawyer. You've talked to me about it. I've actually never seen it. Well, okay. So he is based on a series, a book, I believe. And his thing is that he drive. he has like a bunch of Lincoln cars. Oh, and. Anyway, and he's kind of like a unknown attorney, and then he gets this really high-profile case. I won't spoil it for you, but it always makes me laugh because I'm like, I actually think that there are lawyers who employ this strategy. He drives a certain type of car, and all of them 100%. have vanity license plates. Like yes. one of his, 
one of his license plates is like lawyer. Oh no, this is in Better Call Saul. Lawyer up. Saul's is lawyer up. Lawyer which up. Yeah. Love. Anyway, they do the same thing in the Lincoln lawyer. And I'm like, I honestly, I think that works really well. Mm-hmm. I also, to to return to the branding thing, I think in a lot of professions, some people's personal brand is just like, look how successful I am. I must be good at my job. Yes. Like, oh, we're opening a third new store this year. Mm-hmm. To the extent that some people are like, I just bought a beach house. Mm-hmm. Balling out. Hire me. Yes. I'm curious if you think that's effective and who who is that working for? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is that it works for a lot of coaches. Okay. And I don't know if this is my term for it or if I stole this from somebody else, but the phrase that comes to mind is lifestyle marketing, which is basically, and I'm sure you've seen this or you're going to see this after I say this. All you do is post pictures of you in your bikini at your beach house in Bali. And occasionally like you have your laptop and you're, he just made a million dollars from the beach. Isn't my life so great? Or I just bought my dream car from my business. It's like very little about your business. And it's all about not even just lifestyle, but literally material goods. Like these are the things that I have. And that proves that I'm successful. And I'm probably not being very fair in the way that I'm explaining this because I obviously have a bias against this Mm -hmm. because I don't think it's great marketing. I think anybody can take pictures of themselves next to fancy stuff and say like, don't you want this? Yes. Right. I, I am much more interested in people who can really powerfully articulate what they sell and why I need it and why it costs what it costs. Yeah. That's that's good marketing to me. Two examples. I'm thinking of. Yeah. Um, one is from the Lula Rich documentary. Yes. It's this is very common for very common for MLMs. Sales. Yeah. And what what was so striking to me is that one of the people they interviewed, who obviously there's there's like a confirmation bias there, right? Like totally. people who were totally thrilled with the business model are not volunteering for this expose documentary. Right, 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 right. But it was this lady that I think she she bought this fancy car and had circling back fully a vanity mm-hmm. license about like thanks to Lou LaRoe. Yep. And then it ended up she got divorced, she declared bankruptcy, she lost mm-hmm. her house. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so the prosperity she was selling obviously did not endure. Right. Which right. was kind of sad and and made it seem like this was this was not a natural extension of her involvement with the business, but it was actually like a farce. It was something it was right. it was like a Potemkin village, right? It's like something she put up to impress exactly. before it was empty. Exactly. And this is something that I've talked about a little bit before, but I mean, I think it's interesting even that I call it, we call it lifestyle marketing because the idea is kind of you use your lifestyle to build your business, right? Mm-hmm. And I would prefer to do it the other way around. I want my business to serve my lifestyle, not the other way around. Yeah. And my business is important to me and I really want it to be successful, but I am intentionally creating my business in a way that aligns with my values and my life. And I'm not, I'm not doing everything to promote my business. Right. But I think that's an important distinction. Yeah. The other example I thought of just really quickly while you're thinking, I know uh, there, there's like an influencer couple. 
I won't name them. They don't need, they don't need any more views, (laughs) but they said when they were starting out, this is, this is my interpretation, not theirs. Right. Yeah. They were basically just hot and they wanted to make this, like they wanted to make traveling their business. And so Mm -hmm. what they would do would travel on the cheap and take really nice photos. Mm -hmm. And then they would tag a bunch of brands. This is before the FTC really cracked down on this. Yes. But they would tag a bunch of brands so people thought they were sponsored. Yes. And yeah, so after, that was like, like their whole strategy. But their whole strategy. And then after they got a big following, then they're tagging these brands who are like, who are these people giving us free views? And then it, for them, it worked. Yeah. But it also, to me, it just seemed like a little, it's a risky strategy to affiliate yourself with a brand without their permission. Yeah. And give people the impression that you're sponsored when like you're really not. Yeah. This is opening a whole can of worms about how aesthetically driven we are. Mm-hmm. And I seriously could do a whole episode about this, but I, this is just my own personal soapbox, but I'm like, I don't want, to, and I've said this a million times. So sorry, this is just a repeat, you guys, but I'm like, I don't want to use aesthetics to dupe people. Yeah. My goal is not to create something pretty to fool your target audience into buying from you. Yeah. My goal is to help you brand your business so that it reflects the quality of the products or services that you are selling. Yeah. Because my ideal client has an amazing offer and they're either looking to sell more of it or to sell it to a higher clientele and they want to rebrand it to do that. And so it's a very much, right. hey, let's show people what this really is and not yeah. like oh, let's make it look cooler than it really is, you know? Yeah, let's Photoshop it so that they'll buy it. And then when they get it in the mail, they'll be really disappointed. There are obviously people in all industries, in all niches who choose to use lifestyle marketing, quote unquote, or any kind of marketing that maybe doesn't feel great to me. It feels inauthentic or slimy or, you know, at its worst, unethical. But I am really pleased that my clients and the coaches that I've worked with and that I've hired have all been very value driven and Mm. want to market the right way. And they want to not just sell things to sell them, but really sell things that will improve people's lives and make their businesses better. And so I hope that comes across and I'm not just bashing business coaches or, you know, influencers or anybody like that. And I think as we've noted, stuff evolves, right? Yeah. Standard practice for Facebook marketing or for Instagram. Right. Before it was clear, now it's very clear you have to mark sponsored content. People yes. know, you know, you yes. have to you say, have what to you're say this is an affiliate link, you know. Yes. And I think that's I think that's positive. I'm very pro-transparency. Yeah. So consumers can make an informed choice about whether or not they want to support certain practices. Right. And so some of this stuff we're talking about is people you know, innovating in the wild west of the internet. Yeah. And in hindsight, we can say we like it or don't like it, but it is true. Lots of people made money that way. So. Right. And I think, like I said, my ideal clients, the people that I imagine are listening to this podcast are people who want to be intentional and do things in a way that A, feels good to them, B, is aligned with their values and C, will help them grow their business long-term. Yeah. And I think- in my mind, building a great brand is a great way to do that. Yeah. Building a great brand is the great. best way to do that. That's what I'll say. Boom. Ooh. Boom. Mic drop. Rebecca <laughs> has succumbed to another coughing attack. So I oh think my I'll gosh. wrap this up. <laughs> Hopefully Rebecca is better by our next episode. Hopefully you can just 
play this episode on double speed, everybody, and then my voice will be at its normal pitch. <laughs> she sounds a little bit like Phoebe when she gets a cold and then she sings Smelly Cat in her sexy voice. Mm-hmm. That's about where it is. Yep. Well, I just wanted to say thank you everyone for listening this week. Tune in next week as we return either for a branding challenge or the letter G. We haven't decided. To be determined. And if you haven't, please leave us a review on Apple and you're welcome to ask questions or leave feedback that you would like us to address in another episode because we'd love to do that. We thrive on feedback and <laughs> we we take it seriously. If you asked us a question, we would answer it. 100%. Also, our Instagram is at Aesthetically Speaking Podcast. So you can find us there as well. Okay. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed listening to Aesthetically Speaking. If you want to support the podcast, please leave us a nice review or connect with us on Instagram at Rebecca Peterson Studio. 